You've joined us on part five, our final part of a series about shame and honor. And we've been learning in this series that most of us carry around with us guilt, regret, different kinds of shame that we often don't recognize as shame. Uh, we often recognize it as maybe a low self-esteem or just feeling unsettled. And uh, we've learned in this series that the majority of world cultures and the cultures that Jesus lived in, that scripture was written in, are shame and honor cultures where there are really clear indicators in the culture of things that are shameful and things that are honorable. And we've learned that Western society in America specifically, especially in recent decades, is not a shame honor culture. Uh, there aren't clear things that everyone in, in the society agrees is shameful and honorable. There's a lot of disagreement now about that. And as a result, many of us, we don't necessarily know how to process shame. We don't even know how to identify shame in our lives. So in this uh, series, we've been in Luke chapter 15, and we've been looking at a story that Jesus told. It's a story that maybe you know as the prodigal son. It's a story of a dad who had an estate, and he had two sons. And the younger son did what was a very shameful thing in the culture they lived in. He said, Dad, um, I want my inheritance now. Everything that I would get when you die, I want it now. In the shame of what the son did, there were many shameful things about it. But the biggest is that he was essentially saying to the dad, Dad, you're better off to me dead. I don't love you. I just want your stuff. So give me what's coming to me now. Well, the father honored that request and the son ran away. And, and he wasted this wealth. And this was such a significant thing at this time because this wealth had been accumulated generation after generation, working out in the fields, working with livestock and with crops, each generation receiving what their ancestors had, had accumulated and then adding a little more to it and passing it on to the next. And now this shameful son, not only does he get his hands on the inheritance in a shameful way, but then he goes off and does the most shameful thing imaginable. He goes to a foreign land. He goes to the Las Vegas of his day, and he squanders this wealth, throwing parties, uh, hiring prostitutes, all sorts of shameful things. And he ends up in the most shameful position imaginable. He's homeless. His, his clothes of honor that he had as a son of a family with an estate, he's pawned those off. He has no clothes of honor. He has no family. He's in a foreign country. He's working for a foreigner, and he's doing what is still today in the Near East and the Middle East the most shameful job. He's feeding the pigs. And the incredible thing about this story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15 is that when that wayward son, you may know him as the prodigal son, when that wayward son decides to repent, decides, you know what, life my way isn't working, and he decides to return, the father honors him with this extravagant love. And we saw that the son is not defined by his mistake in the past. But from that moment on, the son is defined by two things. One, by the fact that he returned to his father. And secondly, by the fact that his father restored him. The father had a heart to completely restore the son. And we've been learning in this series that when you come to God, when you believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he came to this earth to die for your sins. He not only forgives your sins. Yes, he does that. He wipes your record clean. You are legally declared innocent to God the Father because of what Jesus did when you place your faith in him. But that's not all. What we've been learning in this series is, is, is this picture of the father who calls to the servants and he says, bring me the best robe. And we've explored how 
rich and full of meaning that was, how symbolic this robe of honor was. And the father takes this robe of honor and he completely covers over the shame of this wayward son. So what we're uh, seeking to do as followers of Christ in this series is to learn to live the way that God says we are, to learn to see ourselves the way God sees us, which is that our shame is completely covered. Most of us, if you're like me, you don't see yourself that way. Most of us still see ourselves as shameful. We still see all the flaws in ourselves. And so we're learning in this series, okay, if Jesus says that the Father's honor completely covers our shame, then how do we begin to actually live like that? So in week two, we looked at our mistakes, how our mistakes tend to day after day remind us that we're not perfect. And we start to redefine ourselves by our mistakes. And the more we do that, the deeper we go into a downward spiral of mistakes. The best way to get out of an addiction or a sinful habit that you may have in your life is not to focus on your mistakes and downward spiral into them, but to focus on the honor that God the Father gives you. And as you redefine yourself the way that he sees you, he's able to put you on an upward spiral of grace that lifts you up out of your mistakes. Week three, we talked about another barrier that comes between us and the honor that God the Father gives us in our own eyes. It's it's a barrier to us receiving that honor, and that's what we call the big kahuna shame. It's that huge thing that you did back in high school, or maybe you did it recently. It's that biggest mistake you've made in your life, or maybe it's not even something you did wrong. Maybe it's something that from your childhood on, people have told you, this is shameful about you. This is wrong about you. It could be a birthmark on your face. Uh, It could be something about your personality, or it could be a legitimate mistake that you made. We saw in week three that God's honor, it even covers those kinds of shame. And last week, uh, we looked at another barrier to our believing that we're honored the way God says we are, and that is the other people in our lives. Other people in our lives sometimes intentionally and sometimes accidentally shame us. And we learned last week about the hold, how some people put us in a shame hold. And when we get around those people, and for some of us it happens this time of year, when we get around relatives who we haven't seen in a while, and and we get around certain relatives and and we just feel guilty around them, or we feel shameful around them. Maybe they're trying to manipulate us, or maybe they're not doing anything. It's just something inside of us. And we learned last week that we don't have to look to other people to get our honor Why? Because we get more than enough from our Heavenly Father. We fill up on His honor, and then He's left us on earth to show His heart to others. So once we fill up on His honor, we begin then to give honor, just like the honor we got that is undeserved. We begin to show the heart of God the Father to those who are far from Him by giving them honor that they don't deserve. And that's where we pick up this week. We're going to get really practical. How do you actually do that? Because we left left last week, and I know the vast majority of us had in mind specific names and faces of individuals who we said, God, by your grace, having received your undeserved honor for me, this Christmas season, I want to give the gift of honor to this relative or this loved one or this person who I can't say is a loved one, but because you honored me, I want to show your honor to them. That's where we left off last week. And so this week, we're going to get really specific and very practical from God's word. How do we do that? So let's start with our tension. Here's the tension. Who's the hardest person for you to love? 
The tension is that we all have some people in our lives who are difficult to love. Okay, maybe for you, it is one of those relatives that you're going to get together with this Christmas season. For some, it's your spouse. You never would have thought on your wedding day when you stood there in those fancy clothes with all the people and flowers that this person who you're going to commit to love for the rest of your life would end up being the most difficult person to love. Maybe it's your spouse because of some things they've done or some things they haven't done, some things that have happened in your history. We all have some people who are difficult to love and take it up a notch, we all have some people who are impossible to love. We all have some people who, in our own strength, in our human capacity, it's just not even, it's not even an option. It's just impossible to love some people. Some of our counselors within our church family here call them porcupines. I think of porcupines and possums, right? When you get into conflict, some people are porcupines. And other people play dead and avoid the conflict, right? And some people are porcupines by nature, and they've just been through so much in life that they're just a perpetual porcupine, right? The, the little spikes are always up. How do you love a porcupine? Who's the person in your life who's not just difficult but impossible to love? Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's a coworker. Um, maybe it's an, an ex-spouse. Maybe it's someone who, uh, as a committed Christian, you're trying to follow Jesus, and this person has a lifestyle that is just very contradictory to Christianity. Uh, in fact, uh, increasingly in the United States, there are um, uh, secular sociologists are saying this, that there are, uh, there's a tribalism. Americans are now all these different little tribes. And, and there are some tribes out there uh, that intentionally want to deconstruct Christianity. They intentionally want to deconstruct and destroy certain things about the American way of life that you love and cherish. Are those people easy for you to love? Are those people from foreign tribes difficult, impossible perhaps to love? Well, do you have someone in mind yet? Do you have hopefully a specific person from your path in life or a specific group of people? Keep that person in mind as we go through God's word today. Here's our big idea. Here's God's uh, enabling, his empowering of us to do something we could never do on our own. The more I experience God's undeserved honor for me, the more I realize that, yeah, I, I was that wayward son or daughter. I was far from God. I did have my back turned to him. And the more I experience and receive how extravagant his undeserved honor or, or a Bible word for it is grace. The more I experience his grace, an undeserved favor and honor for me, then the more I'm able to give that kind of grace, that kind of undeserved favor and honor to others. You could put it this way if you're jotting notes and you want to write it down below that big point there. The more we know the heart of God, the more we will show the heart of God. But we can't show it if we don't know it, right? We can't give it if we haven't received it. The more we know the heart of God, the more we'll show the heart of God. So let's look in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus is going to explain what does it look like to really capture the heart of God, to understand it, not just in your mind, but in your heart. 
and to live out the heart of God to others. What does that look like? Jesus is going to tell us in Luke chapter 10. And, and here's the context. Jesus is answering a question. And, and let me just give you a summary of the story. Here's the story. It's what it looks like to love your neighbor and therefore in the context to actually love God with all of your heart and mind and strength. And it has to do with loving when it's inconvenient. It has to do with loving what is broken and loving it toward a place of restoration. It has to do with loving what is foreign and difficult and you can't understand and loving it into familiarity. So let's look at Luke chapter 10. Let's start in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law. Now, this expert in the law, this is actually historically where we get our idea of a doctorate, okay? A PhD, all right? This is the ancient uh, study of the doctorate of the law. And the law in this case was the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. This is a, a person who has a doctorate in all of the revealed Bible at that time, word of God. He stood up to test Jesus. He's asking Jesus a difficult question. And if you've spent much time reading in the Gospels, this is a pretty standard scenario where these religious experts of the day, what Jesus is saying doesn't match up with them. And, and they're constantly testing Jesus. They're trying to set little traps for him to fall into. And here's what he says, teacher, what must I do? Notice he's a legalist in his assumptions, right? He's assuming that he's going to do something. He's going to work his way to heaven. And we know from the rest of Scripture that, that that's not how we get to heaven. Salvation is a free gift that we accept and receive uh, by grace alone, through faith alone. But what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus asks him, what's written in the law? And, and then this is a neat little phrase here, how do you read it, okay? Jesus is using some insider jargon, okay? Jesus didn't have a PhD in the law, but he happened to have written it because he's God. And he happened to know that in their seminaries and in their schools, when they would debate each other, they had this kind of insider jargon, just like uh, medical professionals or attorneys would have today, this insider lingo. And when they wanted to know, what do you think of this passage? They would use this exact phrase, how do you read it? Okay, it's insider jargon. And so here comes this guy to, to Jesus, who's a, known as a popular rabbi, and Jesus kind of, um, th this is just kind of a little insider baseball here, okay, where Jesus says, well, you're asking me, you're the one with the PhD in, in the Bible, how do you read it? And here's his answer in verse 27, he, this expert in the law, answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. These, these are two different Hebrew ideas for your inner, inner person. The deepest inner part of you that no one else can get to. Love the Lord your God with all of that and that. And with all your strength. And with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. If you're a nerd like me, you can write down Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. That's what this expert in the law, he's quoting those two verses. Verse 28, Jesus replies, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man wanting to justify himself asks Jesus, 
Uh, and Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? Now, this word neighbor is really an interesting word. Uh, in fact, the Latin equivalent, equivalent of it is where we get our word proximity, okay? The word literally, in fact, if you take the Greek adjective for near and you change the last letter of it, that's this word, okay? This is a nearbor, all right? The, the neighbor is, is literally, the word just literally means the people who are near to you. So it's the people who you come across in the path of life. But the really interesting thing uh, is that the uh, religious leaders of this time, specifically the kind that Jesus was talking with, they had redefined this word. And we know this from their writings in the first century at the same time. And their idea of neighbor was anyone who comes across your path who shares your race and your religion and your nationality. So if you come across another Jew, they're your neighbor, but, but a Roman or a Greek or, oh, a Samaritan, they're not your neighbor. That's just the way it was. And this wasn't specific to uh, the Israelites or the Jewish people at this time. Uh, Romans, it was a tribal culture, right? And most people took care of their tribe, of their village, of their people. And so this was a very culturally normal reinterpretation of the word to say it's, it's just the people from our group. So how does Jesus reply to this question? Who is my neighbor? And remember, what's the purpose of defining neighbor? Well, because to, to really love God with all of your heart and soul, your strength, your mind, to really love God with all you are, out from you is going to flow this love for neighbors. So who neighbors are matters a lot, okay? So now Jesus is going to answer the question as he often does with a story. So let's look at the story beginning in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, there's a few things in here for us, okay? First of all, Jesus just says a man, he's Jewish, he's speaking to Jewish people, they're going to assume this man is Jewish, all right? They're also going to assume it because he's leaving where? Jerusalem, the, the capital, not just the capital, but the holy place, the city of peace, the place that represented God and religion for the Jewish people. And when Jesus says that he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, he's being literal. Okay, Jerusalem's about uh, 2,100 feet above sea level. Jericho's uh, a couple hundred feet below sea level. So it's a downward path. It's about 18 miles. So I mapped this out from here. If you set off by foot from here and you walked to Dewey, that's nine miles. So that's, you'd be halfway, okay? So this is a long way. So from here, you walk all the way to Dewey, walk all the way back. This is a four or five hour journey by foot going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this road uh, in history would uh, get the name a couple centuries later, the Bloody Way. It's called the Bloody Way because it's narrow and it's winding and it's through wilderness. And there's all these places where bandits and robbers and gangs of bad guys, okay, could hide above a cliff or below a cliff or right around a corner, uh, and they could, they could mug you, right, and, and take all your stuff. It's a very dangerous road to travel. Most people traveled this road in groups. So, so this man's traveling. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he gets attacked by these thieves. They strip him of his clothes. This was common because, uh, you know, clothes weren't mass-produced. 
uh, and clothes were, were woven by hand and they were very expensive. They were a currency. So they take his clothes, they beat him, and then they go away and they leave him half dead. And that word literally just means half dead. He's half alive, he's half dead. He's in rough shape. He's laying on the road. He can probably still see what's going on around him, uh, but he doesn't have the strength to get up and move. Let's look at verse 31. Well, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Uh, There's two Jerichos at this time, okay? Uh, It's kind of like Prescott and Prescott Valley, okay? There's two Jerichos at this time, and a lot of the priests and Levites couldn't afford to live in Jerusalem, so they lived in, in Jericho. So this road was commonly traveled by the priests and Levites. This priest is going down the same road, so he's leaving Jerusalem. So he has most likely just finished doing his work at the temple, right? Be the equivalent of a pastor driving home from church today. And he sees the man. And what does he do? He passes by on the other side. This, this word, um, this Greek word starts with uh, the preface anti, you know, like antichrist or anti-abortion or anti-war. Anti means against. And the idea of this word on the other side is he went away. Okay, he, as far away as he could get without falling off the edge of the cliff to stay on the road, that's what he did. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. So I want to put this in modern terms for you, okay? I want you to imagine that you're driving home from church today, okay? And you're driving home and, and you have to go through a rough neighborhood, okay? Just use your imagination, all right? And, and you get a flat tire, all right? And you get out to check, to look at your tire, and when you do, uh, a, a, these, these thugs kind of come out from behind a tree or a rock or something, right? And they, they beat you up. They take your purse, your wallet, your jacket, they, they, they beat you up, and they, and they leave you lying on the curb of the road, okay? And you're laying there, and you don't even have the strength to get up. You've been beaten so badly, but you can kind of see out of your swollen eyes, and you see a Toyota Land Cruiser coming. And you know, Pastor John's always talking about Toyota Land Cruisers. That has to be Pastor John. And it gets a little closer, and you see a Cornerstone bumper sticker, and you're like, oh, thank you, Lord, Okay? And the Land Cruiser slows and then speeds up and takes off, right? And you're still laying there. And then comes a van and it's got this huge front window and you can just see through it. It's Pastor Dan. <laughs> Pastor Dan, he's got this huge smile on his face. And, uh, and, and let's, okay, we're just going to adjust the story because it's Pastor Dan, okay? He's just, he just led someone to the Lord and he's so happy about it that he doesn't even see you, okay? All right, I'm just... We just got to be true to Dan's character here, okay? Now I want you to imagine that person who you have the hardest time loving. Imagine that tribe in the United States that seems so hateful, so anti-Christian, so opposite of you and everything you stand for, and now comes a car with that flag on it, with that bumper sticker on it, and it slows down, and it stops. And out comes a person, and that person comes to you, and that person says, it's going to be okay, and that person starts to put pressure on your wounds. 
That person starts pulling out their own clothes from their car and covering your wounds to stop the bleeding. That person picks you up, puts you in their car, and now your blood is getting on their seats. That person takes you to the hospital. As shocking as that picture is for us, it's only a fraction of how shocking this was for Jesus' audience because the Samaritans at this time were so hated by the Jews and the Samaritans hated the Jews in return. They were happy to return the favor. Okay, so let's look now at verse 33. You get an idea of how when Jesus first told this story to his original audience, it was not just a, wow, that's a great story with a moral, moral, good moral in it, okay? This was, this was uh, very shocking. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, what does he do? He takes pity on him. Now, for you, this would be the equivalent of that person who's the most difficult to love. For, for a Jew today, this would be like a Palestinian. Okay, this would be like a Palestinian who lives in the Gaza Strip, helping out this person. In fact, if you want to write it down, just one chapter before this, in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, Jesus sends his disciples into a Samaritan village. And the Samaritans say, no, we don't want anything to do with Jesus. And James and John, Jesus' disciples, say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy those Samaritans? That's how much. And Jesus rebukes them in Luke 9.55. He says, no, that's not how we do it, Okay. But that, that's, that's how it was between Jews and Samaritans, okay? Even Jesus' disciples who are constantly hearing him talk about praying for your enemies and all this, even they think, Jesus, wouldn't you want us to call down fire from heaven on these people? It's a severe animosity. Let's look now at verse 34. After he sees him, has compassion on him, he goes to him. He bandages the wounds of the beaten man. He pours on oil and wine. These would be from his own supplies. Then he, he picks the man up, puts the man on his donkey, and brings him to an inn. And that's not all. Then he himself takes care of him. There's no paramedics at this time. Verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, Jesus, having told this story, finishes it with a question in verse 36. He's talking to this lawyer, this expert in the law from the time who had, who had approached him. Which of these three was a neighbor? In the sense that God means neighbor when he says, love me with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbors yourself. Which one of these three was that kind of neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. Now, notice the expert of the law, he does not say the Samaritan, okay? He's not going to be caught dead saying that. So he kind of wiggles around it. He says, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So this word neighbor that the experts have redefined to mean, yeah, you can love God, and if you love God, really, you just have to take care of the people who agree with you, who share your opinion, who you get along with, who are attractive to you. Jesus has, with one little story, deleted the footnote, right? He's deleted the exception clause. He's restored what God intended with this idea of loving your neighbor. 
And Jesus is teaching us that when we really know the heart of God, then we will show the heart of God. And we will not be picking and choosing who we show the heart of God to. The more we experience his grace for us, the more we give it to others. Undeserved honor is grace. See, grace not only covers wounds and consequences, grace also gives undeserved honor and provision. And this is the heart of God toward you. Do you realize that this is the heart of God toward you? That Jesus is talking about you, that we were the beat up person on the road as much as we also have the opportunity to be the Samaritan. A little quick theology word lesson for you, because there's an important difference between mercy and grace, okay? Mercy is not getting what you deserve when you've done something wrong. Grace is not getting what you deserve when you've done something wrong, and then on top of not getting what you deserve, getting great things that you also didn't deserve, okay? So I like to think of it this way. If someone breaks into your house right now while you're sitting here in church, okay, and you get home, and and your front door's broken open or a window's broken, and all the Christmas presents are gone and the tree's knocked over, okay? And an hour later, the police show up at your house and they've got a guy in the back of the car. They say, we got him. Got all your Christmas presents in the trunk. Mercy would be saying, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to press charges, okay? That's mercy. Grace would be saying, okay, you know what? We're not going to press charges. Go ahead and let him out. And, and then you bring him in, you feed him. And you say, hey, of all this stuff, what do you really need? And you give them that stuff. And then, you know, by the way, we've got these passes to Disneyland. We've got, the, we've got some airline uh, mile vouchers. Let's send you out of here, you know, just kind of overflowing, okay? That's grace. That's what grace is. So you understand that there, there's a difference. They're both used in the Bible. Grace is just unbelievable. Grace is generous. Grace is extraordinary. In fact, if you've uh, read the classic book or seen the film Les Miserables, or maybe the stage play, uh, there's this scene where the, this convict, Jean Valjean, uh, he has just gotten freed from prison, and, and he, he finds a priest, and the priest lets him stay there for the night. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean takes his silver and, and his most expensive stuff, and he takes off. He leaves. To, he steals it. And then he gets caught by the police, and the police bring Jean Valjean back. And the priest, when the police arrive, knowing that Jean Valjean would go back to slave labor, back to prison, the priest says, you left so early and you left the very best stuff. Here, take these also. And he, he pulls out bigger things that, that Jean Valjean couldn't have concealed easily with him. And he says to the police, you can let him go. And he gives him even more. And it's this life-defining moment for Jean Valjean. And it's this beautiful picture of the grace of God toward us. That, that when we had turned our backs on God, when we had run away from him, not only did his mercy cover what we had done wrong, but his grace so extravagantly and so richly said, in addition to covering your flaws and your mistakes, I want to give you the honor of my son. I want to make you a co-heir. I want to clothe you in righteousness. See, when it comes to imparting God's honor or grace to others, we can't give what we haven't received. We can't treat the people who wrong us the way that God would until we really understand how he 
has treated us. So let's look quickly and let's take some applications with us from this story. And the first is something we can learn from the Levite. What can we learn from him, this expert in the law? Here's what we learn from him. It's possible. It is possible to know all the right Bible answers and completely miss the heart of God. That is possible. That happened in the story today. Many of us who've been in church for a long time, there have been seasons in our life when, when this defined us. And maybe some of you today, it's, it's, it, that's where you are. You got all the right answers up here. Okay, but, but the, have you gotten the heart of God? Have you gotten it for you? And then having gotten it for you, are you now getting his heart for others? <laughs> Jesus says, you answered correctly. In fact, in Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked the same question, what's, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus gives the exact same answer in Matthew 22. So the answer was right. The heart was wrong. And then Jesus gives this casual response, okay? You got it right, now just go do it, okay? What, what Jesus is doing very, in a very understated way is he's unzipping the real tension here, okay? The tension is not to know the right answer and wear it on a t-shirt or put it on your car as a bumper sticker. The, the tension, the difficulty is to actually do it, okay? That's why Jesus, knowing the heart of this person, says, yeah, go do that. You know it. Just go do it. The difficulty is actually practicing it. And of course, that's why Jesus came down to earth, God among us, to save us from our own sins and failures and then to enable us into right living, enable us to live the way that he lived and do things we could never do in our own strength, like loving and honoring people who are impossible for us in our human nature to love and honor. So now let's look at the Samaritan. And we're going to look at him in a very practical way. Because, you know, most of you, from the beginning of our time, you still know who that person is, whose name or face, or maybe it's a tribe of people who came to your mind that you say, yeah, those people are impossible to love. Those people are, they're so backwards, they're so savage, they're so anti-Christian, or that person in your life, because of what they've done, they're just so impossible to love. We're going to look at the Samaritan, and we're going to pull out some really practical steps that you can follow. Now, just like the Levite's answer, you could know these steps up here without them soaking into your heart. But here's my prayer for you, is that you know these steps and you pray through them. God, step one is this. Will you help me to do this toward this person? So let's look at these. Step one, to give honor, undeserved honor, I have to start seeing others as God sees them. All right, and if you're like me, each of these steps is a prayer. Lord, that person, it's not in my nature. There's nothing in me that could love them, that could honor them. But I know you've left me on earth to show your heart to them. So will you help me to see them as you see them? And how does God see them? Well, first of all, they're made in his image. No matter how sinful they've become, no matter how fallen they are, 
no matter how separated from God they are presently, God initially created them in his image and they're designed to be in relationship with him. And so because of that, God desires them. He wants to restore them. He wants to, that's what the word salvation means, is to restore, okay? He, he wants to wash them off and clean them and cover their shame with his honor. He's just waiting for them to turn to him. But how are they ever going to know to turn back to him? It's through us. We're going to be the ones to show them that they can turn back to him. You're not going to be able to un- honor unhonorable foreign people until we start to see them the way that God does. There's this incredible uh, interview on the internet. Joel Rosenberg is a, a Christian author. He, he lives in Israel right now. And he, and he knows uh, a lot of pastors in the Middle East. And, and right when this, Assyri- uh, this uh, ISIS, the Iraq and Syria state of Islam, began overtaking Iraq, Joel did a phone interview with a Christian pastor in Iraq in a city where ISIS was approaching. And it's about a 20-minute interview that you can listen to on the internet. And in the interview, this pastor has this incredible view of these violent enemies. And Joel at the end asks the pastor, would you, would you pray for us? Here's this Iraqi pastor who said, we don't have any weapons. We don't know what we're going to do. We're just going to stay here. We're just going to keep proclaiming Jesus and, and whatever happens to us, we know where we're going to be in eternity. And Joel says, hey, hey, would you close us in prayer? And this pastor, as he's praying, starts to quote the words of Jesus when Jesus is on the cross. Do you remember when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Stephen, one of the first martyrs in the book of Acts, Stephen was, was publicly uh, mobbed, and they started throwing rocks at him. And they kept throwing rocks at him. They stoned him until he died. And, and as they're throwing the rocks at him, Stephen says the same thing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Okay, that's seeing people with the eyes of God in a way that we cannot see in our own strength. And I remember listening to this Iraqi pastor, and he's praying, and he says, God, I want to pray for these ISIS men who are outside of our city. Would you forgive them because they don't know what they're doing? And would you turn their hearts to you? Would you help them to see and receive your free gift of salvation? I'm thinking, here I am on the other side of the ocean. These guys aren't any physical threat to me, and that is not in my heart, okay? But here's where it starts, seeing people the way God sees them. And for some of us, that's where we start praying. God, these people in my life who are impossible for me to love, will you enable me to see them as you see them and here's a note on that to see people as god sees them i'll have to discard some categories of culture and lifestyle and religion that are normal and human as an american as a christian as as i'm just gonna have to discard those it's in the story that's what jesus does while i was studying this text it was interesting to learn that martin luther king jr the day before he was assassinated His final speech, which of course was a sermon, don't forget that he was a reverend uh, and a Christian, his final sermon was on this passage. Here's an interesting quote from it. Martin Luther King Jr. says, the first question the Levite asked was, if I stop and help this guy, what's going to happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and reversed the question, if I don't stop to help this man, what's going to happen to him? 
Well, next, if I want to honor people who are not natural for me to honor, I must have compassion on others. This word pity in Luke 10, verse 33, when the Samaritan sees the bleeding man and he has pity on him, it's the Greek word splachna or splachnon. It's where we get our word spleen, and it means your, your inner guts, okay? Uh, they didn't understand cardiology like we do today. It was their equivalent of saying in his heart, because when you really feel something, don't you kind of feel it in here? And, and, and splachnon, compassion. He sees him and he has compassion on him. And there's a note here. How much compassion I show to others indicates how much or little I've been gripped by the heart of God. And there's a really you know, simple exercise you can do when you sense, okay, this is where I see that they're a sinner separated from God, that they're a slave of Satan, and what they're doing is destroying them as much as it is other people. I see that, but I have no compassion on them, okay? That then you can just pray yourself through these passages. Exodus 34, verse 6, the Old Testament defining who is God, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. You can trace that forward to Luke 15 when that wayward prodigal son is, is walking home and the father sees him off in the distance and has compassion on him. And here, this good Samaritan sees the person beaten down and broken and has compassion. Next, to give honor, I must go to the hurting. He went to him, bandaged him. Now, if you're like me, you get overwhelmed because, you know, we live in an era with technology where we can see what's going on all around the world. And we see that there are hundreds of millions of people without food or without clean water. And, and it's, it, if you're like me, it's like there's so many people who are in need. I know there's nothing I can do to help all of them, so I don't even know where to start. And so we end up kind of doing nothing. And here's what's so cool. It takes us back to that word neighbor, okay? Who are the people that God puts in your path? Uh, it's, it's great if, if you can do something for people on the other side of the world, but, but just focus on the people in your path. Focus on the people on your street. Focus on the people in your workplace. Focus on the people in your family. Start with those who are actually in proximity to you and when you see them hurting when you see them beaten down in life see them the way God does pray for his heart of compassion and then go to them this happened to me the other day and I, I almost was the priest in Jesus story because I was I was driving down Cortez up where it turns into Iron Springs and on the side of the road, I saw this old man who uh, had an umbrella and he had fallen down. He was on the sidewalk and he had fallen down. And, and I saw him and, and I felt this compassion in my heart. And then I saw that there was this baby boomer aged couple out for a walk. And, and I kind of slow down and I look and they're helping him up. So I think, okay, good. You know, I got a sermon outline to get done, you know, so... That's literally what I thought, all right? So I go and I turn right down the next road to get to my, my office at the church because, you know, I got to go you know, get my sermon ready and Good Samaritan comes to mind. Oh, John, you're such a, 
So you're such a hypocrite. Okay, get back there. So, so I turn around and I, I get to the guy and I pull up in my Land Cruiser, right? And, uh, and the old couple, they've got him up on his feet now. He's got some blood on his forehead. His umbrella's um, a little bit bent. The aluminum on it is bent. And I say, hey, do you guys, can I give you guys a hand? And they're like, yeah, you can take him. We don't, we don't have a car or anything. We can't carry him. So, so we open the door and, and we put him in there. This guy's like 93 or 4 years old from the Netherlands. And he lives in an assisted living home. So, so he remembers where it is. And, and I get him there, get him inside. And as I'm walking back to my car, uh, I was just hit by this, this wave of emotion this was, before, this was months ago, before studying all this. And it was like God was saying, John, this, this is why I give you resources. It's so that you can help others. It's not so that you can stockpile them for yourself, okay? I give you a capable vehicle. I give you these things so that you can use them for others, for the, for the people who are in your path in life. And, and, and we... We don't see it because people's personalities great with ours or they have legitimately hurt us and wronged us, but we don't see that they, they have fallen down and they are beaten down by sin and by Satan. And we are on earth to help them up. That's why we're here. And if God has put them in your path, there's a reason for it. It's not an accident. So we see him with God's eyes. We pray for his heart and then we act on it. Imparting grace is rarely convenient. It requires disrupting my agenda. Okay. Isn't that what God did when in the first Christmas he left the comforts of heaven to come down to this sewer of a planet? God disrupted his perfect existence to show grace to you. Next, to give honor, I must sacrifice my comfort, my time, and my money in order to actually touch that person's wounds. You know, I don't know if you've ever bound up someone's wounds, but when you do, you get bloody. If they're really bleeding, you get a lot of blood on you. Look at verses 34 and 35. I've put some of the verbs in yellow here. There's at least nine. If you count, he said, as speaking up on behalf of the injured person, there's 10 things, 10 intentional actions that this Samaritan takes, none of which are convenient for him to help the person who's been knocked down in life. And there's a principle for us there. Compassion without action is nothing more than a feeling. See, we live in such a feelings-dominated society presently. You think, well, if I felt compassion, I must be having compassion for the person. No. James in James 2 verse 16 says that's not how it works. If you see someone who's hungry or without clothes and you say, hey, God bless you, brother. See you later. That is not compassion, okay? Compassion is action. Compassion is when, when, when God stirs that up in you and you act on it. Feeling that and not doing anything, that's just a feeling. Nothing more than a feeling. Finally, to give honor, I must invest my time, money, and self into an ongoing relationship of healing. 
I get to travel around the country a little bit and, and talk with church leaders about challenges that the church is facing nationally. And one of them is this conflict that evangelicals have or in most uh, areas with the LGBT community. There's this, this conflict between these two communities. And, and as I do my best to teach to get us more biblical, what does God's word say about how we live in a pagan society? in a post-Christian society. One of the things is that, that we're to go to people who are foreign to us and we're to show God's love to them. And, and people will say, well, what if we do all that and they still hate us? What if we do all that and they don't accept Jesus and they still hate us and they, and they still sue us and persecute us? Well, then you've been a great success. You've been a great success because you see, God never puts it on you. Whoever the foreign tribe is in your life, he doesn't put it on you to turn their hearts to him. All he asks of you is to show his heart to them, okay? And if you show his heart to them, you are a success. No matter how they respond, you're a follower of Jesus. What happened when he showed the heart of God to humanity? Was he a failure? Okay, success is just being obedient to what God calls us to do as followers of Christ. We go to those who are foreign and far from us. We show them extravagant love, undeserved honor. Why? Because that's what God did for us. So what can we learn about God's heart? Well, we can learn this. All humanity is on its way down from the holy place. Jerusalem was the holy city to the place of the curse. Jericho was the city of the curse. Once Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, from then on, human history has been a downward trajectory. We are on our way down from fellowship and relationship with God to the place of the curse. And on that road, we have been mugged and beaten and left for dead by an enemy who God calls Satan and by our own sinful nature, which deceives us and destroys us from within. And this is what Christmas is all about. When we on the road of life, we're bloody and beaten and half dead, looking out of swollen eyes, laying there, Jesus stepped down to help. We who were poor, we who were blind, we who were enslaved in sin, we who were oppressed, all we like sheep had gone astray. We had turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Satan, the attacker, has had his way with us. But God did not pass us by. He came near. He stepped down. He bandaged our wounds. He lifted us up. He takes us to a place of healing. And he remains committed in relationship with us to continue our restoration. It's interesting to think that not too long after Jesus told this story, not too long after, that he would be stripped naked. That he would be beaten half to death. and That he would be sent up a road with a cross on his back. And that under the pain of that beating and the weight of that cross, he would stumble and he would fall face down on that ground. 
And no one from his country, no one from his religion, none of his followers would come and help him. He was beaten in your place, stripped in your place, left dead in your place. His teeth fell into the stones of the road, a body so battered it couldn't lift its head so that you need not be beaten down on the road of life. He did that in our place. Almighty God became the ultimate victim of abuse and savagery so that we who trust in him need not endure the same. The designer who made you, who knit you together in your mother's womb, is a great restorer. And he waits to restore all who believe. He wants to restore you. So in final conclusion, have you received God's extravagant grace for you? Have you had that moment? Maybe this Christmas, that's the greatest Christmas gift you could get. To have that defining moment in your life like Jean Valjean had in Les Miserables where you say, God, I realize what I've done wrong and I realize your extravagant grace and I receive it through Jesus Christ. For those of us who have received it, here's a question. Are there areas in your life where you need that washing and that healing and that restoring of God's unearned honor? This is what Christmas is about. That our sins were is scarlet, he washes them white as snow. This is what Christmas is about. Have you, have you received that? Have you let it wash over every area of your past and your present, every area of your fear and your doubt and your regret and your shame? And then having filled up on this unearned grace, to whom will we go and give it? Who's the beaten down person in your home? Who's the beaten down person who will gather with you this Christmas? Who's the bloody, disgusting to you person in your workplace? The unlovable, the untouchable, the defiled. I'm going to close by telling you guys about this classic children's book called The Boxcar Children. There's these four kids, and their mom and dad pass away, two boys and two girls. And they've never met their grandpa. They've never seen their grandpa. And from some things they've overheard, they conclude that their grandpa is an angry, mean man. And, and they hear that their grandpa's going to come get them, so they run away. They run away, and as they're out on the road, they encounter some other adults who who try to take advantage of them in different ways. And so they run out into the woods and they find this old abandoned train boxcar. And it's summertime and they make this boxcar into their home for the summer, these four siblings. And, and the oldest, a boy, he goes into town and, and he gets this job working for a doctor in town who has an orchard. And, 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 and he'll work, he'll get paid in cash, he'll buy a little food. And these four kids are living in this boxcar by themselves. Well, eventually they start to run out of food. Eventually it starts to get cold. Eventually one of the sisters gets sick. And about that time, this doctor who the oldest boy works for introduces them. They're now all coming to the doctor's house on occasion. He introduces them to the nicest 
man they've ever met. Total stranger who is kind to them, takes interest in them, helps them, plays with them. And this kind old man, eventually, after he's built a relationship with them, reveals he's their grandpa. Everything they thought they knew about him was wrong. But, but he doesn't just come down and say, I'm your grandpa, because he knows they'll run away, right? So he comes as a caring man who helps the children. He spends time with them in their environment. He keeps his true identity veiled because they were so convinced that he would be mean and that they would have to run away from him. And once he has proven through undeniable actions that he is good and kind and loving, then he reveals who he is. And this is how God came down in the person of Jesus Christ. Because we're so convinced in our hearts that God is against us and that he's angry at us and that we need to run from him. We're so convinced that he came down and he showed us through undeniable actions the gentleness, the kindness, the patience, the extravagant, undeserved honor that comes from the heart of God the Father. And then eventually Jesus revealed, this is God. I am God. This is what God looks like. Once we experience that, once we meet who he actually is, now, we who are followers of Christ, why are we on earth? We're on earth to do the exact same thing. We're on earth to go to the people who are the most convinced that God hates them, that God doesn't exist, that God is against them. And we don't go to them and just say, God, God, God. We go to them the way Jesus came to us, the way the good Samaritan approached that bleeding man on the side of the road. We see them the way God sees them. We love them with God's heart of compassion. We go to them and we meet their needs and we build a relationship and we do all of this unconditionally, no matter how they respond, no matter if they never respond, we do this because this is what God did for us. So this Christmas, have you received the grace of God? And now as we go from here, will we give it to others? Would you stand and pray with me? Father, thank you for your extravagant love for us, Lord. Lord, I just want to pray right now for anyone in this room who may not know you, who may still think that you're that angry grandfather who's out to get them. Lord, if any of us still have that misconception of you through our faith in Jesus, who shows us the heart of the Father, we trust in you this Christmas. We believe in you. We thank you that you've paid the penalty for our sins. And that you give us not only mercy, but also grace that covers all our shame. Lord, for those of us in this room who've received that gift, will you help us to live the supernatural lives that you call us to and empower us to? That we would become agents who show that grace to others. Extravagant, undeserved, unearthly honor and grace from the heart of the Father to them. And Lord, I pray that through the men and women in this room as they go into family gatherings and work gatherings and neighborhood gatherings and as they show 
your heart to those who are far from you. I pray that through them, through us, you would wrap your arms around people who are far from you and gather them close to the heart of God. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.